This is KMTT. The week begins this uh, winter, Tavshin Ayn, with a shiur by Harav Benjamin Tavori, a series, weekly series, on uh, modern responsa of the 20th century, more or less, both the individual and the and the topic. Harav Benjamin Tavori. Today, we will discuss, in light of the responsa of the 20th century, the first <coughs> more modern chief rabbi of the Sephardi community of Eretz Yisrael. Until now, we've been discussing the, <coughs> the Ashkenazi chief rabbanim, and today we'll begin with the Sephardi chief rabbi, who is the rav more or less paralleled part of the time of Rav Cook and continued Afterwards, Rav Ben-Sion Meir Chai Uziel was born in Yerushalayim in 1880. His father was a well-known Tamit Chacham, the head of the Kehillah, the, uh, the head of the Bezdin. And Rav Uziel was brought up in Yerushalayim. The details of which yeshiva he learned, I'm really not that familiar but it's interesting to note that at a very young age, he left the yeshiva and started his own yeshiva. He began teaching when he was about 20 years old. In 1911, when he was 31, he was appointed as the Rav of Yafo. And I will mention again later, but let's remember that Yafo was a major city in Israel at that time. He took a few years off with the permission of his uh, his community to go to be the Rav, the Chacham Bashi, as it's called, in Salonika. He came back to Eretz Yisrael. In 1923, he was appointed to be the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. Now, if we think that he was the Rav of Yafo and Tel Aviv, we realize, of course, that Rav Kook, at that time, more or less, was also the Rav of Yafo. So they worked together at that time. Now, Rav Kook became the chief rabbi of Israel and Rav Uziel was chosen to be the chief rabbi of Israel in 1939. More or less, he continued in that position until he passed away in 1953. He was known as a foremost halachic authority the reputation of the Sfaidi Rabbanim vis-à-vis the Ashkenazi Rabbanim had suffered in the years before him, and somehow he seemed to have restored the Sfaidi glory of Psak. Of course, as time continues and will continue till the modern poskim, we'll see how the Sfaidi poskim have be, have emerged after this period of time. Rav Uziel, of course, as any other chief rabbi was very much involved in many public affairs, was considered a great orator, a great person of original thought in the world of Machshava, but his claim to fame seems to be more in the area of Psakalacha. He published volumes of Chuvas. In fact, today that they're working on reprinting and printing new manuscripts of Rav Uziel. 
They've printed nine volumes of the Shut Mishpatei Uziel. Mosad Rav Kook once published a volume called Mishpatei Uziel, which in a sense was a compendium of the volumes of Mishpatei Uziel, and they brought in that volume the a number of chuvas that related to the times which have historical value as well. As one could expect, we'll see many of the issues that were posed to Rav, to Rav Uziel, which he had to deal with, were also posed to the other chief rabbis whom we have mentioned above. Sometimes the difference in just a few years can show a different historical perspective of the issues involved. One of the questions that we've seen that Rav Untermin, in fact, almost every chief rabbi has dealt with, was the issue of counting B'nai Yisrael. We saw that uh, a, a practical suggestion was given by Rav Untermin in a way to avoid the halachic issue. And Rav Uziel also paskin that because of the needs of the state of Israel, we could have a census, but he said the halachic issue was not involved when they fill out a form and they just count the forms. It's only if they count the people directly that there's a problem. So that issue, again, is one that has come up in the 20th century many times, many people have discussed. Now, one of the interesting questions that Rav Uziel dealt with is a question that we've seen, but in a later historical period of the 20th century. The question was the use of elevators on Shabbos. Now, it's very difficult to imagine that such shelot were raised in earlier generations. Simply, they didn't have elevators. And in fact, the building was not the same as today. They were low buildings. How many flights could the building have had that would have even contemplated the concept of having an elevator? And in Israel, when there were, began to be three or four or even more floor apartments, so then the issue of elevators was raised. Now, Rav Uziel wrote this question apparently before the time of the automatic elevator, which was an issue that we have discussed already, that again, that was posed to Rav Unterman, again, Rav Gorin has dealt with it, but here, Rav, Rav Uziel was not at all asked about an automatic elevator. It obviously did not exist. The question was, could you allow a Jew to use the elevator run by a non-Jew? In general, Melacha that's done for a non-Jew for the purpose, for the sole purpose of a Jew, is forbidden. And Rav Uziel could not find a way to permit such a thing. However, he did suggest that if the non-Jew would go up with him in the elevator, and it would be considered as if the non-Jew is doing it for himself, then Rav Uziel found a place to be matir. Now, of course, in Israel today, this solution is not very prevalent because the Jews do not live in a building where they're 
many Jews and non-Jews. Of course, in Chutzlaretz, this uh, heter of Rav Uziel would have interesting ramifications. Today, where the question are, is really about automatic elevators, you see how far we've progressed. But what's interesting to note is that when Rav Uziel pointed out that he could find a heter to allow the Jew to go up if the non-Jew is goes up with him, he says, I know that this is a very difficult heter and one could question it and debate the point. However, today we should realize that we have buildings of three or four flights. Now, can you imagine? The questions were asked about buildings with three or four flights. Today, when we have skyscrapers, even apartment buildings of 20, 30 floors, the questions obviously are different. But Rav Uziel writes, people cannot, not everybody can walk the flights of stairs, and it's impossible to imagine that a person should be locked up in his house on Shabbos. So what should you do? Therefore, I, I feel that I have to find the heter and say that as long as the non-Jew goes with him, so it'll be mutter. As I mentioned before, today we'll have to look for a different type of heter and we'll discuss the electric elevator as we've seen in Chuvas already mentioned. Another issue that was asked and has been discussed in our series of Shirim on response of the 20th century was the question of the city Tel Aviv. Now, when you write a get, you have to be very meticulous and careful as to write the get exactly and have all the names correctly done. Uh, we've already mentioned that the city of Tel Aviv became known as Tel Aviv Yafo. And we saw that Rav Herzog, as well as others, raised the issue, since the government called it Tel Aviv Yafo, what should we write in a get? And sometimes they write, when people have a type of a nickname, they would write such and so the miscarry, which whatever the name is, that it's called something else, like uh, Yaakov, uh, that the miscarry Jack, or something like that. And now here, Tel Aviv is the name of the city, or is Tel Aviv Yafo the name of the city? This question is a very technical question in writing get, but it does reflect the issues of the time. Rav Uziel himself points out that Tel Aviv has underwent certain changes in its status in his day. Now, this tshuva was written in Tafresh Pezayin. Now, if I'm right, that's 1927. And in 1927, Rav Uziel pointed out that until that day, there were at least three different periods of to the building of the city of Tel Aviv. <coughs> Originally, Tel Aviv was founded as some sort of a suburb to Yafo. Remember, Rav Kook was the chief Rav of Yafo. Yafo was considered a major city. Tel Aviv at that time was dependent on Yafo, and therefore when you would write a get, you would write Tel Aviv bim masa Yafo. It was in the, somehow in the area of Yafo and considered part of Yafo. Later on, a new development 
where the beginning of the city of Tel Aviv began, and many of the people from Yafo moved to Tel Aviv. Therefore, Tel Aviv expanded and grew, and you couldn't think anymore of Tel Aviv as a suburb of Yafo, but it was an independent city. But yet, it was somewhat connected to Yafo, and they didn't have exact borders between Tel Aviv and Yafo, so therefore they wrote in the get, Tel Aviv bi Yafo, which meant Tel Aviv which is in Yafo. Later development points out Rav Uziel, was that Tel Aviv became a metropolis. Many different sections gathered and formed the Ir Ivrit, the Jewish city that was called Tel Aviv, and then Rav, Rav Uziel says this is the name by which it was named in the government. In the, it had its own police force. It had its own borders. So therefore, in such a case, you should write Tel Aviv to without mentioning Yafo. Now, exactly what the Psak would be probably would have to change as the city develops and the way people understand the name of the city. My point was not to discuss the practical halachic solution. How do you write Tel Aviv and Yafo, but to see how from this tshuva we actually begin to understand exactly, reconstruct the development of Yafo from halachic texts. Another point that was raised by Rav Uziel was another example of a theoretical halachic issue which had remained rather dormant over the years as a halachic issue, but somehow came into prominence and became extremely important in the 20th century. And the question was, milking cows... On Shabbos. Now, in Rav Uziel's work, this particular tshuva and the discussion that many people wrote to him, people answered him, became perhaps the largest section the of individual tshuvas. This might be the longest tshuva that I've seen in the Mishpatei Uziel. The, the entire... Uh, discussion around it comprises a, a, a quite a few pages of the book. Now, for many years, we knew the Gemara says that it's forbidden to milk cows on Shabbos. And assumedly, over the ages, there were many people who had a cow, who had some way of getting milk, and they had to figure out a practical solution individually of what to do with milking cows on Shabbos. But it wasn't like an issue that would have been discussed so much in in, in responsa, because it was a local issue. A private person had a private issue. But here, when we have a situation where the economy of many families, of many villages, might be dependent upon the milk it was an issue that really had to be dealt with. Rav Uziel wrote, since the area, the industry of milk in our country is one of the foundations of the, far, of the farming society, hundreds and maybe thousands of families have, are supported or 
somewhat supported from milk. So it's an issue that we have to take very seriously, learn it carefully, and try to find out a way to be matir. Now, again, in today's world, we have milk machines, and we have automatic systems to milk cows on Shabbos, and today's solutions would be completely different from what was suggested in the 20th century. Of course, Rav Uziel deals with this question from the beginning until the end. From the beginning means we have to study exactly what is the halachic problem of milking a cow on Shabbos. Rav Uziel goes through a long discussion of the various Rishonim who try to understand what exactly is involved in milking a cow. And, of course, one of the main issues would be whether it's Asr Midaraisa or Asr Midrabanan. If it would be Asr Midaraisa, then obviously the place to maneuver to find the Heter would be much more difficult than if it's only Nisad Rabbanan. Part of the discussion is taken by the opinion that Cholev is a Tolda of Mefarek, which is a Tolda of Dash. Now, Mefarek, a Tolda of Dash, basically means removing one thing from another. Removing the... In, in, in Dash, you take one part away from the other. And Cholev would be to take the milk out of the cow. Tosus and Shabbos, in the beginning of the sugyas of the Melachos and Shabbos, Tafayim Gimlom base, Tosus points out that according to the opinion that Mefarek is a, that Cholev is a tolda of Mefarek, which is, is Mefarek, which is the tolda of Dash, there would be a problem because Dash only refers to Gedulei Karka. Some of the Malachas and Shabbos only refer to things that are actually part of the vegetation. Disha applies to Gedulei Karka. Now, Tosus builds a whole theory. Since Mefarek is a Tolda of Dash, and Dash only applies to Gedulei Karka, since an animal is not considered Gedulei Karka, Therefore, Mefarek should not, Cholev should not be Yasser on Shabbos. Now, it is true that many Rishonim have found other sources to explain why Cholev is Yasser. But if we would learn like this opinion, and Rav Uziel quotes the Ramban and others that basically follow this opinion, we may posit that milking a cow on Shabbos is actually only Nisad Rabbana. This point, by the way, requires a lot of analysis because all the the question of Tosfus is based on a lot of presumptions and a lot of those assumptions could be questioned. For example, is an animal really considered not Gidule Karka? An animal does get its sustenance from the earth and for certain respects we know that an animal is considered Gidule Karka. So that issue is not so simple. The fact that Disha only applies to Gudule Karka is a machlokas in the Gemara. The fact that Mefarek, that Cholev is a tolda, Mefarek was a tolda, is also a problematic issue. Another issue that is very interestingly brought about by Rabbeinu Avram, the son of the Rambam, 
was even if we would assume that the Av Melacha, namely Dosh, only applies to Gedule Karka, who told you that the Tolda must conform to the standards of the Av? Maybe the Av has one set of standards, but the Tolda could have another. Maybe it's true that Dosh would only apply to Gedule Karka, but a Tolda of Dosh, in this case, let's say, Cholev, might apply even if it's not Gedule Karka. This argument of uh, Rabbeinu Avram ben Arambam has ramification for another question, for many other questions, but I, I'll give you just one interesting example. Tosus in Shabbos points out that since we assume that Ochel Nefesh work for production or for cooking and food on Yantif is permitted, and we have a principle any malacha that is permitted for the purpose of ochal nefesh would be permitted even if it's not for ochal nefesh as long as it's tzarech yantif according to some rishonim. So this would mean, for example, that you can carry food on yantif, of course, to go from one place to another to take your food with you. But you can also carry uh, whatever you need to carry for yantav. Now, Tosas pointed out that making cheese in Yantif would certainly be permitted. And making cheese is called Megabain. Now, we know that Megabain is the tolda of Bone. Bone consists of a concept of taking different parts, putting them together to create a new salad. And this is what happens when it takes the whey and the ingredients of, 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 um, the cheese, and put them together to make it into cheese. Now, that is permitted on Yantif. So, Tosus argues that if that would be true, then one would be allowed to build a house on Yantif, since the Tolda is Mutter on Yantif, and Hutra Litzara, Hutra Shalalitzarach, so therefore Bona would be Mutter on Yantif. Again, we could argue this way almost backwards. Just because the Told us Mutunyantif doesn't mean the Avis Mutunyantif. Who told you that the standards of the Tolda and the standards of the Av are the same thing? So the whole argument that Cholev is a Melacha de Rabbanan bases itself upon a lot of, lot of assumptions, but some Rishonim do pask in that way, and Rabbeinu and Ravuziel paskin according to that opinion, that it's only an Isid Rabbanan. Then we have to go through a number of steps to determine what would be the best way to permit milking a cow on, on Shabbos. Well, one of the solutions that had been common in Israel at that time was to have non-Jewish labor. The assumption, of course, that for security reasons you could bring in non-Jewish labor. And there was a major issue in Israel at that time. Should we rely on only Avodah Ivrit, Jewish work or non-Jewish labor? And is this a way to rely, to solve our halachic problems, to always assume we have to rely on non-Jews? But the issue was compounded by a historical event at the time. And it is described as follows. There is some sort of a sickness, of an animal sickness at, at, in, in Israel at that time. Now, when we think of mad cow disease and other issues, swine flu, etc., we understand that this is a problem that can exist many, many times. But 
the at that time, since this particular illness was considered very contagious, and it was spread by people coming from their farm, from their animals, to come to other farms, and bringing their illnesses with them. So the government forbade the Arab workers to enter the Jewish communities. So therefore, this possibility of milking by non-Jews no longer existed. So, one of the common solutions was to milk into food. Since it would not be considered taking a milk from a solid, but taking a, a, a perhaps making a solid into a solid, the animal is a solid, moving it to the food, so perhaps that would be permitted. And again, many people did discuss such an issue, but Rav Uziel felt that this was not a viable heter. So the other solution was to milk and throw away the food, throw away the, throw away the milk. The purpose of milking would be to reduce the pain, the tsar balichayim of the cow, which needs to express its milk. But if you don't use the milk, then people argued this might be considered mekalkel. Rav Uziel says this is not mekalkel. Mekalkel would mean the action you do is a destructive action. Here you're milking the cow. That's not destructive. The fact that you don't use the milk doesn't make it into mekalkel. But then you could argue maybe it's a malacha sheinat sikhalukufa. I don't require, if I don't want the milk, then I'm expressing the milk, shalotzach lukufa, which would, according to many Mishonim, would only be nisad rabbanan, and perhaps we can imati nisad rabbanan because of the needs of the community. And uh, Rav Uziel again does not find this to be a suitable heter, but then he goes on to discuss the issue of Tzar Balichayim. Now, there is a machlokas in the Gemara if Tzar Balichayim is the Raisa or the Now, the Gemara says if Tzar Balichayim is the Raisa, then we can permit an Isud Rabbanan to be done to reduce Tzar Balichayim. So, basically, the source for Tzar Balichayim is very problematic. It's true that there's the opinion of Gemara Tzar Balichayim is But when we look to see the source, where is a, any mention in the Torah of Tzar Balichayim, we'll come up with so many opinions. One person even brings an opinion from the fact that Bilam hit the Aton, and they asked him why he hit the Aton. That seems to be, although that's found in Rishonim, it seems to be a rather far-fetched source of Tzabah Lechayim. At best, it could be only a, an admonition that a person should not himself afflict an animal. But to re- remove Tzabah Lechayim from an animal at the expense of an Isler, uh, that would seem to be uh, rather a, a big jump. Nevertheless, the Radvaz says, although there is no clear mitzvah, there is no clear iser that's found in the Torah of Tzabah nevertheless, it's a principle of the Torah, and many Mishonim Paskin Tzabah is the Raisa. So with the Koach of Heter, Rav Uziel said, since Tzabah is the Raisa, and he Paskin that milking a cow is the Rabbanan, so he allowed milking of cows in Israel on Shabbos, but with a number, a number of conditions. One condition was, this is only when you can't find a Jew, a non-Jew to do it. 
Secondly, it should not be done publicly. Thirdly, it should not be done in the normal way of milking a cow, but rather only to the extent that it's necessary to reduce the Tzar Balichayim. At the very end, Rav Uziel said, I really think that this is permitted, but he phrased it, He did not give a heter to, that you could follow, but he used it as a suggestion for other people to discuss, and he wanted a consensus of opinion in Eretz Israel. As I mentioned before, you see from the wealth of discussion found in Mishpat Uziel and others for him, this issue was extremely important in Eretz Israel at the time. The last issue that I'd like to mention in terms of the historical period was a tshuva that was written in Tuf Reish Sadivav. That's 1936. And the question was asked, as we know many questions were asked in the 20th century, about Yom Tov Sheni. Today, we're inundated with people asking questions. Uh, they come from abroad to spend Yom Tov in Eretz Yisrael. And uh, some keep one day, some keep two days, some keep day one and a half. And again, you'll f- this phenomena of people coming, people buying apartments, people coming for every Yom Tov, is a new situation that we've come across rather lately. But this question, 1936 is very interesting. It was written to a certain Dr. Rosenbaum who lived in the city of Azda. It was asked and written to Rav... The answer was was given on the 13th day of Nisan, just before Pesach. And the question was, what do you do in Azda? Do you keep two days Yantif or one day Yantif? You see that there was a Jewish community living in Aza, but apparently it did not have at that time a direct uh, custom of what to do about Yom Tov Sheini. Do you keep two days or one day? Now, Rav Uziel has to discuss the issue, firstly, under what circumstances do you keep two days and what circumstances do you keep one day? The basic principle that he works with, although it's a machlokas rishonim, is wherever the shlichim came to, if the people who saw the new moon and testified that the moon had appeared, if they had reached a certain community under normal circumstances, so those cities would keep one day antif. But if it was beyond the trip of the shlichim at that time, then they would keep two days. So Rav Uziel said, it's a very simple question. We have to determine whether the Shlichim reached Aza or didn't reach Aza at that time. Since Rav Uziel found this issue rather difficult to determine, we had to check and find out what was the custom of the people that lived in Gaza until that time. If they really kept one day Yantif, it's a sign that they had a tradition that the Shlichim really did reach Gaza, Gaza and therefore they should keep one day. So the bottom line is that Rav Uziel paskind that in Aza, you, which is a Yishuv Yisrael, you should keep one day. And he based himself upon the opinion of the Rambam that wherever the Shlichim came, they kept 
one day Yantif. Other Rishonim have a different understanding of the criteria for one day or two days, but interestingly enough, the the community of Aza kept one day. Today, I don't think that question is particularly relevant.